Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to the pastor's class on this, the second Sunday in the season of Advent. We welcome those who are in the room with us and those who are listening to us on KFUO radio. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we pray that you would stir up your power and come among us. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Prepare our hearts to receive your Son, who came as the lowly baby of Bethlehem, who comes to us today in word and sacrament, who will come again in power and great glory. May we always be watching and waiting for his coming. And so we pray this day that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to the truth of your holy word. That we might be strengthened and encouraged in these days as we wait. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The lessons that we're going to be looking at today are actually the lessons for next Sunday, the third Sunday in the season of Advent, known by the Latin name Gaudetta Sunday. You may notice that, that the rotation begins with two blue candles, and then comes the rose candle, and then we go back to the blue candle. And sometimes people get confused and think the acolytes have made a mistake. It's supposed to be the three blue ones and then the pink one. But no, the third Sunday in Advent goes by this name Gaudetta, which means rejoicing. The emphasis of the third Sunday in Advent is on rejoicing and the joy that is ours as we wait for the Lord who comes again. Our first lesson comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. As maybe you've noticed by now, the, the season of Advent has many, many lessons that come from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation, and he's probably the best known of all the Old Testament prophets, certainly the best loved of all the Old Testament prophets, and the best preserved. We have more of Isaiah going back further in history to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know that these ancient uh, scrolls contain a very clear copy of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived at a critical time in world history. He lived halfway between the, the time of Moses and the time of Jesus. Roughly from 740 B.C. until 686 B.C., he had a ministry that lasted more than 50 years. Isaiah 1 verse 1 tells us that this is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so his ministry was primarily to the northern kingdom. He prophesied in, in the midst of all kinds of political, all kinds of spiritual upheaval, all kinds of change, a time much like our own. Isaiah saw the fall of the northern kingdom. And he tried to, to warn the people of the southern kingdom that what had happened to Israel could happen to Judah and Jerusalem as, as well. And so there's a great deal of law in the book of the prophet Isaiah, but we focus primarily on the clear gospel, the good news that Isaiah brings, because as his name implies, the Lord is salvation. 
To look at chapter 35, you really need to put it into its context. You need to read chapter 34 to get a clear idea of what's going on here. In chapter 34, he's talking about the coming judgment of the Lord. The judgment that was going to fall upon God's people. And in, in 34 verse 2, for example, he says, The Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all the host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord's day of vengeance. Sulfur, burning pitch, confusion, nettles, thistles, the haunt of jackals. You get the idea he is laying on really hard, talking about the day when the Lord comes is going to be a day of judgment upon the nations. Then things seem to flip in chapter 35. He's talking about the very same day, the day of vengeance that will come upon the nations as a day of rejoicing for God's people. And so chapter 35 begins, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice, Gaudetta, and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. As I said, both passages, 34 and 35, are talking about the same day. One is the message of law, and the other is the message of gospel. He talks about this day when... God will be doing a new thing in the midst of that terrible desert, in the, the midst of all the things going on in the world around us, God is going to cause the desert to bloom and blossom, and he will make his people rejoice. He, he calls on us to look at three nations, Lebanon. Remember that the cedars of Lebanon were used to make the temple. And so you, you picture Lebanon as a place with all of these, these beautiful trees. Carmel was also a hilly area known for all of its rich growth. Sharon was a coastal plain where there was all kinds of forests, dense vegetation. And what he says is that God's people is going, are going to see the glory and the majesty of God on this day. He's going to make the desert bloom like Iowa, a rich place, abundant farmlands, rich vegetation. It's going to be glorious when the Lord comes again, for they shall see the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is a specific thing that Isaiah talks about as the, the book goes on, especially from chapters 40 to 66, he focuses on the glory of the Lord. If you go back in scripture and talk about the glory of the Lord, you go back to the days of the Exodus. Remember that God had this glorious pillar of fire and smoke, the Shekinah. And this glory of the Lord went before the people by day to show them the way to the promised land. There were other times when this glory of the Lord swung around behind them and protected them from all of their enemies. 
And then when they had built the tabernacle, it was the glory of the Lord that came down and filled the tabernacle with the glory of the Lord. So this was a, a very specific thing that Isaiah is talking about when he says, they will see the glory of the Lord. We hear it a little bit in, in Isaiah 40 where he says, comfort, comfort my people, so says your God. Speak tenderly to her. Every valley shall be filled in. Every, every mountain shall be brought low. The, the land will be leveled out and all nations will see the glory of the Lord. I, Handel picked up on this when he wrote the Messiah. The Alleluia Chorus, the line that gets repeated over and over again is, and the glory, the glory, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Right? And so that's, that's kind of what Isaiah is saying. This, this is a glorious time for God's people. Let's rejoice as we look forward to this time when the Lord comes to do his new thing. to Change the deserts. To make them blossom and flourish and be rich and abundant in all things. In verses 3 and 4, Isaiah goes on to say, Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. And it sounds awful. But then we'll look at the next words. He will come and he will save you. In the midst of all of the terrors of this day of vengeance, the Lord will come and save you. So he says, strengthen the weak knees. Make firm the feeble knees. Be strong as you wait for the Lord who comes. And don't be afraid. That's why Gaudetta uses this passage as the time to say, yeah, we've heard the call, the Baptist cry to repent. But on this third Sunday in Advent, the word is fear not. Rejoice, because the Lord is coming to save you. Think of how often, especially in the New Testament, we hear those words, fear not. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, Hail Mary, favored by God, but she, she didn't know what to make of this announcement. And the angel said to her, to her, Fear not, for you found favor with God. On the night of his birth, the, the shepherds were out in the field taking care of their flocks when the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were, as the King James said, sore afraid. They were terrified. The first word the angel said was, fear not. And the women who went out to the tomb on Easter morning were terrified when they saw that the stone had been rolled away, the grave was empty, there were angels standing there, and what's the first word the angel said? Fear not. And so Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, is saying, don't be afraid, fear not, for the Lord is coming, and he's coming to save you. That's the reason we rejoice. 
In verses 5 through 7, he continues, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. There is going to come about a great reversal of the way that things are going. Judah could see the handwriting on the wall. The enemies were attacking. In time, Jerusalem would be besieged. They would be concerned about geopolitical things going on all around them. And the word comes from Isaiah saying, there is going to be a great reversal of the way that things are going when God comes to act on behalf of his people. Blind will see. The deaf will hear, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, and the desert is going to be turned into streams of water, and this haunt of jackals that he described in verse uh, chapter 34 is going to be filled with reeds and rushes, which only grow around the marshy places, the wet places. We'll hear these words again in the gospel for next Sunday. As Jesus pointed John to the signs of who he is. Jesus is the one who fulfills this passage as he performed miracle after miracle, saving his people. So the, the focus of this part of Isaiah is on the wonderful things that God brings into our lives when he comes. This image of streams in the desert is a favorite image. It recalled the wilderness wanderings as the, the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness. God always provided refreshing water for them everywhere they went. And so Isaiah picks up on that theme and thinks, when God comes, it's going to be so refreshing, so uplifting, such a joyous time for God's people. Then in verse 8 he says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. A highway. A super highway. Most of the, the roads in those days were, were really just kind of cow paths, as we would call them. Just little trails that people walked from one town to another. But Isaiah is describing a superhighway, an elevated highway lifted up. And he calls this the way of holiness. This highway is, is going one direction only. It's going to Mount, to Mount Zion. It's going to Jerusalem. 
It's going to, to the temple. It's going to the presence of God. It's the only way. And not everybody is going to be there. Those who are unclean, those who are, are sinful, the lions and the ravenous beasts, they aren't going to be there. But those who are redeemed, those who have been ransomed by God. You know, the word redeemed means bought back. Ransom is paying that, that price that sets the, the captive free. Those are the people who are going to be on this holy highway when the Lord comes again. We can't help thinking about our redemption and how we've been ransomed, not with silver or gold, Luther said, but with the holy, precious blood of Jesus. Will we be on that highway when the Lord comes again? Will we be heading toward Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to the temple, to the glory of God? Yes, because we have been redeemed. We are among the ransom because Jesus has died for us. He says, rejoice. Be glad. Look forward to this time when our Lord comes again in all of his glory. We'll see it. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Any thoughts about the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 35? <clears throat> well, let's continue then with the epistle from the book of James. Now, Martin Luther had very little use for the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. But he went on later to say, you know, even straw has a purpose. Straw is used for bedding. Straw was used uh, to ignite fires. While, while it's not totally as valuable as some, it still has some value. And so does the book of James. Maybe Martin Luther overstated the case when he called it an epistle of straw. <clears throat> Who is James? There's all kinds of speculation about who James is. You know, Jesus had two disciples who were named James. But it probably wasn't either one of them. It was more than likely his, the, bro, the kid brother of Jesus. Um, in those days, the name would have been Jacob, Jacob, we would call it, but we translate it as James. James, the brother of our Lord, he had been an unbeliever during the, most of the Lord's ministry. Remember the time when Jesus' brothers and his mother came to, to get Jesus because they thought that he was out of his mind? And then Jesus made this comment about how my mothers and brothers are those who hear my word and, and do them. Jacob might have been an unbeliever until the cross and the resurrection. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter, it talks about the resurrection appearances of Jesus. It goes down through the list, and Paul says, finally, he appeared to me also. But in the middle of that, it says, he appeared also to James. And imagine what that moment must have been like when the risen Savior shows up 
after everyone knew he had died, and he says to his brother, his half-brother, I'm here. And every doubt that James would have ever had would have come to an end. How could that possibly be? And so James became, we believe, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, a leader. We, we know that there were several times when he appears in the book of Acts. For, for example, we know that there was a, a terrible famine in the, in the land, and it was James who wrote to some of the outlying Jewish churches, inviting them to take up an offering to take care of the saints back in Jerusalem. James was one of those who didn't flee from Jerusalem during the persecution. He stayed there. So James wasn't really interested in, in evangelism. He was mostly interested in supporting the saints who were already Christians. James also appears at the Jerusalem Council. Remember there was this big debate in, in Acts 15 about the whether or not the Gentiles could be saved. They have this debate, and finally Simon Peter stands and says, I believe that, that we're all going to be saved the same way the Gentiles are. We're going to be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. But who has the last word at the Jerusalem Council? Who resolves the whole thing? It's James. He stands up and he says, okay, we believe that the Gentiles can be saved. We're going to only ask three things. We're not going to have them keep all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but don't eat things that are strangled, don't eat blood, and don't involve yourselves in sexual impurity. And if you can do all those things and you believe in Jesus, you're our brothers. And that resolved the whole conflict about the salvation of, of the Gentiles, including all of us. So James played a key role in the formation of the church, in keeping things strong back in Jerusalem, the, the motherland for many of the Jewish Christians. We also know that he died in 62 AD when he was stoned to death by the high priest and the Sanhedrin. So James was writing this letter to what he calls the dispersion. Jewish people had spread out from Israel throughout the world. There were little pockets of Jews we know in Rome and Ephesus. We know that every time St. Paul went on a missionary journey, he always went to the synagogues first because there were Jews everywhere. And he gave them the opportunity to hear the gospel before he moved on to the Gentiles. So James is writing to the dispersion, those Jewish Christians who were in their little pockets in cities around the world. He tells us a great deal about early Christianity. I think the name Jesus is only mentioned twice in the book of James. That's why Luther didn't have a whole lot of, of um, confidence in, in what James is writing. But I believe that what James was doing is saying, you all know the truth. You know about Jesus. The issue now is, how do you live a Christian life? What does the faith produce in you? And so, uh, again, it, it's 
This emphasis on, on faith and good works that got James into trouble with Martin Luther. But James is saying, you're saved. You, are, you belong to Jesus. How do you live as a Christian now? And it's interesting that while it, it isn't part of our reading for next Sunday, James chapter 1 verse 2 begins, Consider it all joy, brothers. Consider it all joy, a perfect message for Gaudata. What does it mean to, to believe in Jesus and how are we supposed to live? Consider it all joy on that Gaudata Sunday. All right. <clears throat> James comes off a, a lot like the book of Proverbs. It's just, uh, he goes from topic to topic. He gives command after command. This is how you're supposed to live. But... But James is very down to earth. In all of the illustrations that he uses, he sounds a lot like his big brother Jesus, using earthly things that everybody would have known and using these earthly things to teach deep spiritual truths. So James chapter 5 is the focus of our attention, verses 7 through 11. James writes, be patient. Oh, we'll spend some time on that word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of John, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Since the Lord is coming again, coming again soon, coming without warning, how are we as Christians to live in this world? And the first word he says is, be patient. Take a long, hard view of what's to come. Patience doesn't come naturally to us, especially during the season of Advent, as we become busier and busier with all kinds of things in our lives. The idea of Jesus coming again even gets pushed into the background as we focus on celebrating the fact that Jesus came long ago. Be patient, he says, like the farmer. I lived among farmers for 11 years. All of Iowa is about farming. Farmers are not very patient people by nature. They worry from the time they put the seed in the ground until the time they harvest it. They're worried about that crop. But you know, there isn't a thing that they can do to make it grow. They put the crop into the ground and they wait. 
and the spring rains come and the summer rains come and the crop begins to grow. It used to say, they used to say that the corn needed to be knee high by the 4th of July. Now the corn is already head high by the 4th of July. <clears throat> and if it's not, they're worried. And if they don't get the rains that they think they do, they, they've lost their crop. Every year they lose their crop two or three times as they wait for the rains to come. But then, after waiting, and waiting and waiting, the harvest comes. And there is that great joy in every farming community. Everything comes to a stop. There are no more patients when the harvest is ready. Every man, woman, and child is somehow engaged in gathering that crop in. What is it? that St. James is talking about when he says, be patient like the farmer? He's saying, can't make it happen any faster, but live in expectation that the harvest day is going to come at God's time, at the right time. And in the meantime, you need to be watching and waiting. And the word he says then is expecting. Wait with expectation, the way farmers wait. Wait with expectation the way a pregnant woman waits. A pregnant woman doesn't just sit there day after day thinking the baby was going to come nine months, eight months, I've completed 35 weeks, 36 weeks, 37. No, there's all kinds of work that needs to be done in the meantime. Uh, <clears throat> The nursery has to be prepared. The clothes all have to be there. There are doctor visits and things that have to be done during this time of waiting. But there's always this baby who's coming. And that changes her, her entire look at the world around her. Takes a, a different look at her own life and how she cares for herself as she waits with expectation for the baby to come. That's the word that James is using here. As an example, look at the farmers who expect the crop to come. As an example, look at the pregnant woman who is waiting for the baby to come. That's how we're to live our lives now as we wait for the Lord Jesus to come. It's a reality. It's going to happen. It's going to be an unexpected time, but the day is surely drawing near. I'm not always sure that we Christians take, take the second coming of our Lord that seriously. We, we come to church and we think about it and we talk about it. And we even pray at the dinner table, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. But somehow we, we neglect to, to realize what we're praying about. And we neglect to realize that our Lord Jesus said he is going to come again. And, and what are we to make of that? How are we supposed to be living in this kind of expectation as we wait for our Lord to come? If, if you knew, if you knew for a fact that Jesus would come tomorrow, or change it this afternoon, or before this class is over. What would you do differently? 
How would you be living your life today if you knew it was going to be happening? James' point is, it is. It is that certain. It is going to happen. So how should you as a Christian live your life during these days as you wait for the Lord Jesus? And remember his opening comment is, consider it all joy. Not a fearful thing. This isn't Isaiah 34. This is Isaiah 35. When, when the Lord comes again, there's going to be this huge reversal. And the lame and the blind and the deaf and the deserts, it's all going to be changed as God does his new thing. So wait for it. Then he says, don't grumble against one another. Oh. Is that a word for today? Don't grumble against one another. Now, certainly James was concerned in his day about the, the carping that would go on in a Christian community like Jerusalem. And, and that when, when people are under stress, they become more vocal against one another and the terrible things that are going on around them. And what would happen to evangelism if the, the church was always complaining, what would, it, what would happen if, if a, a person walked into church and, and they talk about that crazy Bible class and how bad that teacher was and, and nobody should be going to Bible class anymore and this is awful. What would happen for, for visitors who would come to a, a, a church like that? Would they ever come back to that church again? If all they did was hear the, the, the congregation complaining about one another or how terrible things were? So we translate that to our times. Don't grumble, he says. What do you do with Facebook when God says, don't grumble? And you hear people on Facebook, well, they, they boast about all the good things going on in their lives, but they also use that as an opportunity to take pot shots at one another. People can say things on the Internet that they wouldn't say to anybody face to face. Don't grumble, he says to the church today. And so, and so it's a, a very timely word for us as we wait for our Lord Jesus to come again. What are you putting on Facebook? What are you writing to other people? What are you saying about it? If Jesus was coming again this afternoon, how would you be talking about other people? He says, don't grumble. As an example of suffering and patience, he says, take the prophets. And yeah, in the, the midst of all this word, all these words that they had to proclaim, they did a great deal of suffering. Hear about Isaiah, you hear about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and how there were times his own people took him and threw him down a well in order to get rid of him. As an example, take people like Jeremiah or any of the others who suffered all kinds of things for the sake of the faith, but but they had the word of God, the word of God which they held on to, the word of God which kept them strong in faith. And remember, that's what, what James is really talking about. 
How do you live? How do you make your faith real? What do you do as a Christian living in the world today? Look at the prophets and how they remained steadfast in the midst of all they had to suffer. Or then he says, or, there was Job. Think about Job and, and the patience of Job. Job always had patience. Now Job lost everything. And there were times when, when he was struggling, why is this happening to me? His friends kept telling him, Job, why would you believe? Why would you hold on to a God who allowed all these things to happen in, in your life? Job, give up and die. But Job held on. He had the powerful word of God. And in the end, he saw the blessing. He saw that it was truly worth hanging on to as God restored to him everything he had and twice over. Need an example of why we need it and how we can be faithful today? Look at Job. <clears throat> Yesterday we, we had a, a funeral at the seminary. Dr. Ku Se Ying, uh, the first Hmong pastor in the United States, responsible for directly or indirectly starting somewhere 20, 25 Hmong congregations helping the seminary become engaged in, in worldwide outreach, understanding all kinds of ethnic groups. This man had so much to offer to the church today. He gave a, an essay at this past summer's convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, was feeling tired afterwards. And between July and November, December, he died. In my way of thinking, Lord, you goofed. How could this possibly be? Why would you take this man who had so much to offer to the church and take him out of the world at this time? It's a glorious celebration as we're reminded that God is in control. God does have a plan. God has opened our eyes. God is, is helping his church to recognize the need to reach out to the ethnic groups. Be patient. Don't grumble. Wait for the Lord. Live in joyous expectation because the Lord Jesus is coming again. And so he ends this section by reminding us that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so be patient. As I said, this is a hard time for us during the the season of Advent to be patient, to, to wait. But I think it's also a sign of our times. We live in an age of instant gratification. We want what we want, when we want it, and we want it all right now. And you, don't tell me I have to wait for anything. James is, is speaking to that kind of selfishness, that self-centeredness that says, I've got to have it all right now. I've got to have all the answers right now. I've got to figure out God's plan right now. He just says, be patient. And remember, whatever it is going on, whatever it is that you're waiting for, especially as you're waiting for the Lord to come again, be patient. 
because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Any thoughts about this, these words from James 5? Right? The Holy Gospel for next Sunday then comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 15. To, to set the background, you remember that, that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. We're going to look at in more detail. We, we hear about the Baptist cry over and over again during the season of Advent. And in the Epiphany season, he appears again. We want to look at John and who John is and, and what John's ministry was really all about. But John had this tremendous ministry. And then he got crossways with King Herod, and he ended up in prison. John was, was struggling at this point. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus with a simple question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John, John, uh, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Some... Scholars are often asked the question, why did John do this? Was John doubting himself? Or was John pointing his disciples to Jesus and say, go talk to Jesus. Are you the one? Is it time for us to all rally around you, Jesus? I believe that John was, was really doubting. He was really struggling with his faith. And it seems hard to imagine and as, as we go on to talk about John, how could this man who was always so bold, so strong, so courageous, be questioning? Before he was even born, we hear in, in Luke's gospel that the baby John, the unborn, the preborn John, leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Jesus and Mary drew near. He recognized Jesus before he was even born. How could he get to this point where he even questioned whether Jesus was the one? In today's gospel, the, the gospel for the second Sunday in Advent, we read the words of Matthew 3. John declared, now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As the story goes on, Jesus presented himself to be baptized. And John tried to forbid it because he knew who Jesus was. He said, I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus explained it was necessary. And so John went ahead and baptized Jesus. There was no question about 
who Jesus was that day. But now John was in prison. And he had been talking about axes and fire and winnowing fork and acts of judgment that the Savior was going to be bringing. All he saw Jesus doing was healing the sick and raising the dead and curing lepers. Where was the judgment? Where was, where was the, the threat? Where was the call to repentance? Was John's ministry worth nothing? He had called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Was it at hand or wasn't it at hand? Was there going to be judgment or wasn't there going to be judgment? Could John have been having a crisis of faith, a struggle with who Jesus is? I believe the answer is yes. Every one of us has had a crisis, a struggle, our doubts about who Jesus is, what God has done for us. Think of the prophet Elijah. There's a lot of comparisons between John and Elijah, as we'll see. Elijah had that huge victory in which he killed all the prophets of Baal. Remember the story? Built the altar and God sent fire and burned up the altar and the sacrifice and the water around it. And then... <clears throat> Elijah slaughtered all of the prophets of Baal. It was a huge time of victory. And immediately he went into a depression. And he thought that he was the only one left who believed in God. You wonder, how could Elijah have gone through a crisis of faith like that when he just experienced the biggest victory of his life? Don't we all go through the same kind of struggle at times? Times when, when, when we hear in our, our heads voices that, that tell us it can't be real, it can't be true. Don't we have, have times when we really doubt who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and could he save a poor, miserable sinner like me? I think that's what was going on in John. He was hurting. He was in prison. And he was expecting acts of judgment. But John knew what to do with his doubts. Instead of just wallowing in prison, wallowing in all of his doubt, letting those doubts get the best of him, he went to Jesus. And Jesus answered his doubts. Verse 4 says, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus could have said, yeah, John, I'm the one, remember? Those times before you were born, remember when you baptized me, remember? He didn't say that. He pointed the disciples and John to the works. In chapters 8 and 9, just before this section of, of Matthew's gospel, there is a story of miracle after miracle after miracle. And now Jesus says to those disciples, go and tell John what's really going on. 
It's just like the prophet Isaiah had said. Remember Isaiah 35, the Old Testament lesson? Everything Isaiah said was going to happen is happening right now. In other words, yes, I am the one who was to come. And on top of the things that Isaiah talked about, the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And Isaiah talked about that too in Isaiah 61. What Jesus is saying is, John, go back to the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? What did the prophets proclaim? It's all happening right now. Your faith is not based on the things that you see or the things that you think or the things that you feel. But your faith is based upon the mighty word of God. And that's what overcomes all of our doubts. And then he ends up by saying, blessed is, is the one who's not offended by me. Ah, blessed. Blessed is the one. Jesus had preached about blessings in the Sermon on the Mount. Who's blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. And he goes down this whole list of people who are blessed and finally, he ends by saying, blessed are you when people persecute you and lie about you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because your reward is great in heaven. And now there's poor John sitting there in all of his doubt. And Jesus says, you're blessed. You're one of those who are being persecuted and punished and put to death. But you are truly blessed because you know the truth. Your faith has saved you. Verses 7 through 10. The disciples are going away. And Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I suspect that John's disciples are still within earshot. As, John, as Jesus turns his attention to John, Jesus had just established before them all who he was. He was the one who fulfilled all scripture. But now it's time to talk about who John is and the important role that he played. And he reminded these disciples and others, what did you go out into the desert to see? And the amazing thing was, people did flock from Jerusalem, from the entire area, out into the country, which they never did. City people don't go out into the country very often. But everybody was going out to hear John, because what were they expecting? To go out to see a bruised reed? Imagine a reed blowing in the wind. If John had been wishy-washy, would anybody have gone out to see him? Nah. What did you go out to see, a bruised reed? No, you didn't go out to see a bruised reed. Did you go out to see somebody in fine clothes? That wasn't John. He wore camel skin, leather belt around his waist. 
People who have fancy clothes live in king's houses. You didn't go out to hear an agent of the king. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes. That's why people were going out. They might not have liked John's message, but they went out because they knew John's word was the truth. John had called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so Jesus said, yes, you went out. You went out to hear a prophet, and you heard more than a prophet. More than a prophet? You heard the greatest of all the prophets. He's the one who fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi. Now, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. John played an important role in bridging the gap. The gap between the Old Testament and the New. Malachi talked about the messenger. God would send his messenger before his face who would prepare the way before you. Jesus is saying John is the one that Malachi prophesied about. John is the one who was sent by God to prepare the way. John called people to repent so that they would recognize their need for a savior. John was the one who pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John plays a unique role in God's plan of salvation as he prepared the world for the coming of his Son. So Jesus said, Truly, truly, Amen and Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen no, anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John saw some amazing things. John played a unique role in God's plan of salvation. But Jesus said, one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Who's Jesus talking about? One who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. John was blessed to see Jesus. He was blessed to baptize Jesus. He was blessed to spend time with Jesus. But John never got to see the cross. John never got to see the risen Savior. Jesus is saying those of us who have been to the cross, those of us who have seen the risen Savior, those of us who are believers today, those of us who are part of the kingdom of God, we're blessed more than John is, as great as John was. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violence take it, and the violent take it by force. Jesus 
proclaimed, prophesied, that there's always going to be persecution. There's always going to be suffering for us who are Christians. You can expect it in these days as we wait for him to come again. He says, all the prophets, all the law, they all prophesied to John. John had a unique role in God's plan. But if you're willing to accept it, Jesus said, he's Elijah who's to come. You know the last verses of the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 4? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The last words of the Old Testament talk about Elijah coming again. And Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John is the one who fulfills that prophecy. John is the Elijah, a second Elijah. Not in the sense that he was Elijah raised from the dead, but he fulfilled that unique role. Elijah had proclaimed God's word in a difficult time, and John was doing the very same thing. John was the one who was the forerunner of the Christ, just as the Old Testament had foretold. He bridged the gap between the Old and New Testament. It's all before the great, and how, how, does, he, how does he say it? For all the prophets. Um, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. It's happening now, John says. He's the one who, Jesus said, he fills the gap. Pay attention to what John is saying. If you're willing to accept it, pay attention. A word for us during these days of Advent as we wait as we wait patiently, as we wait with expectation, as we wait in the difficult times in the world around us, all of Scripture is being fulfilled. John is the forerunner. He prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus has come. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. But Jesus is coming again. If you're willing to accept it, prepare. Look forward. Find joy, for he's coming. In the name of Jesus, amen. Shall we pray one more time? Gracious Father in heaven, there are some times when, when we have our doubts. There are times when we grow impatient. Times when we grumble, especially in these days before Christmas. We pray, gracious God, that during these days you would open our eyes that we might see, that in those times of doubt you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might see Jesus, that we might base our faith clearly on your word, that we might be strengthened so that we might wait, that we might wait for Jesus, that we might look forward to that great and terrible day that's coming, a day when you will come and he will come to save his people. So keep us in faith this week as we look forward to next Sunday as we gather together around you, these words and around the sacrament to be strengthened in our faith 
and our preparations for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.